Good morning, church. It's wonderful to see each one of you here today. As we go now to our time in the Word, we'll be in Mark 12, finishing up chapter 12, so 35 through 44. How many times in your life have you ever experienced the fear of missing out? Times when there's such excitement abuzz that you can't help but wait on the edge of your seat for what comes next. Because what's coming is so exciting, so monumental, so life-altering, that to miss it would feel like missing the whole thing. We experience this often in life. Now, to be sure, most of this... Most of the time it's hype or it's a passing fad, but nonetheless, we see this at sporting events. Who wants to miss their favorite team's turn on offense or some type of pivotal run? We see it at celebrations as well, fireworks shows, birthday parties, etc. In one famous incident on February 28, 1983, the New York City Sewer Department experienced its single largest spike in water usage in history. Why, might you ask? Was it a sporting event? A major emergency? No, it was none of those things. So what would cause the New York City Sewer Department to experience such an emergency at precisely 11 p.m. on February 28, 1983? It was the series finale of MASH. The two-and-a-half-hour episode aired from, 11, from 8.30 to 11 p.m. with only 11 minutes of com- er, 30 minutes of commercials. People were so glued to the television that no one dared to get up during the entire episode. Following the end credits, everyone made a mad dash for the facilities, creating what is to this day the single largest water usage in New York City history, requiring an additional 6.7 million gallons of water in 30 minutes. For comparison, this is triple the water flow over the American Falls at Niagara Falls in the same stretch of time. But what happens when you actually miss something monumental? When you actually miss out? What about times in your life where you missed an opportunity that could have been life-altering, but you failed to recognize its significance? Shortly after I graduated with my master's, a techie friend of mine started to talk to me about this little thing that he said was going to be the next big thing. You may have heard of it. It's called Bitcoin. I looked into it to humor him and saw that it was only worth a few pennies and figured that it was a waste of my time and would never be anything. Anyway, I was a poor recent graduate making a meager wage who figured that $100 on food was probably a better investment than something that I couldn't see that was worth basically nothing. In 2010, one Bitcoin was worth nine cents. As of yesterday, that $100 investment that I could have afforded at the time would have had a market value of $55.8 million. Our journey through the book of Mark has forced us to consider many things. Not one to mince words, Mark quickly gets to his point right at the beginning in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Essentially, Mark's entire gospel is a defense of that claim, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
who consequently has the authority to make the proclamations that he makes. That is a bold claim that threatens to upend the entire structure of the day. Now, it's tempting to read Mark's gospel as simply a story about Jesus upending the power structures of the day to the benefit of the poor and helpless against the rich and powerful. And there are certainly some elements of that dynamic that show up in Jesus' ministry. But to stop there, as many modern liberal theologians and secular humanists do in order to further their own social, sociopolitical agenda, completely misses the point. We do see healing of the sick who are often the marginalized of society in the day. We see casting out demons from those who are oppressed. Most importantly, though, and often what is missed or intentionally omitted, is we see Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. A kingdom has a king, and a king means obligations, and that we are not our own final authority. We see more teaching about the kingdom of God in Mark's gospel than we see of anything else. Consequently, what we also see when Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God is the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians rising up to oppose him. As early as Mark 3, 6, we see that the Pharisees went out, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It wasn't that Jesus helped a crippled man that aroused such ire. It was his challenge to the Pharisees' perceived lordship over the Sabbath. Later in Mark 3, we see Jesus counter the Pharisees' accusation that he is in league with Satan with his own proclamation that it is in fact they who are in league with Satan, and if they are in league with Satan, then they stand opposed to the kingdom of God. In Mark 5, we see demons acknowledge what the Pharisees refused, that Jesus is Son of the Most High God. Beginning in Mark 7, we see a series of more frequent and direct confrontation with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They confront Jesus over his disciples not washing their hands. Jesus immediately rebukes them for one, not for focusing on the external instead of the internal, and two, their hypocrisy and manipulating and twisting the law to their own benefit. In Mark 8, the Pharisees demand a sign of his authority as if all the previous signs had been insufficient. And moving forward in Mark 8 through 10, we begin a cycle of Jesus foretelling his death at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. These predictions of his death culminate with his entering Jerusalem. However, just before he enters the city and temple, he is proclaimed to be Jesus, son of David, in 1047 by Bartimaeus, something so obvious that even a blind man could recognize it. Make no mistake, this is a messianic proclamation. Even though son of David is used nowhere in the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah. The Old Testament does teach that Jesus would be descended from David, this designation was repeated by the great throng as Jesus entered Jerusalem when they declared the coming of the kingdom of our father David in 1110. In what may have been an unexpected twist, 
Jesus did not go to the palace to claim his throne. Rather, he went to the temple to look around, and he did not like what he saw. When he returned the next day, what he saw revealed the true heart of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the priests. Rather than the true worship of the living God, they were interested only in their own self-aggrandizement. Rather than a blessing to the world, they were looting the people. As Jesus declared their deception, they challenged him on his authority. He deftly parried their question with a question of his own about John's ministry. Jesus then proceeded to declare that they are hypocrites and betrayers, ignorant of the scriptures and the power of God. Something important to point out at this juncture is that Jesus has not given them any new additional revelation about the Messiah and the kingdom of God. Rather, he uses the scriptures that they already have, that have been previously revealed to them to show that they are without excuse. They should have known it was right there in front of them the whole time. They were entrusted with the revealed word of God, but in their hardness of heart, rebellion, and treachery, they refused to see what was so obvious that a blind man could see it. In last week's text, we were confronted with a question from a scribe who asked about the greatest commandment. To the scribe's satisfaction, Jesus declares that the entire law is built on love for God with the entirety of our being and love for others. In this, Jesus explains that external compliance is much less significant than the internal motive of the heart. In today's text, we're confronted with three seemingly disjointed pericopes with a question about the Messiah's origin, a final denunciation of of the scribes, and an example of humility, surrender, and faith. Yet taken together, today's passage speaks about how to avoid missing the kingdom of God. Let's turn now to today's text. Mark 12, 35 through 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had 
all she had to live on. As I said, the, the first question that we're confronted with is, who is the Messiah? At the beginning of today's text, we learn that this is still a continuation of the same day that began in 1120. Jesus had just taught his disciples that faith, prayer, and forgiveness are required of true disciples. This is the same day in which Jesus condemned the Pharisees' treachery and betrayal in their rejection of the Son, condemned their withholding from God what is rightfully his, and condemned their ignorance of the scripture and power of God. Last week, we were confronted with a scribe who asked a question about the greatest commandment. And while Mark presents him favorably and Jesus commends him, Matthew's account in, in Matthew 22 still presents this scribe as testing Jesus. We can surmise, however, that this was a genuine test of inquiry and not an attempt to trip him up. The beginning of today's text takes the form of a disputation. That is, the scribes have had their chance to interrogate Jesus with their questions. Now Jesus has a question of his own. But just one. But it's a doozy. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? By this time in Jesus' ministry, they should know that any time Jesus asks them a question, they are about to get exposed, and this time will be no different. He asked this question while he was teaching in the temple. Remember, as we've seen throughout Mark, when Jesus teaches, he teaches with authority, unlike the scribes who have no authority. After Jesus condemns their ignorance of the scripture, he asks them a question. The answer to which, if they actually knew the scriptures, they should know easily. In Matthew's parallel account, the Pharisees reply, the son of David. But in Matthew's account, the point is the scribe's ignorance. Mark does not include that detail simply because it's not Mark's point. Mark's point is on the nature and the mission of the Messiah. And we know this from the text. The beginning part of the text, you know, we talk about the sandwich. But what's in the middle is the most important. And what's in the middle is the nature of the Christ himself. David said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? This tells us that Jesus' point or, or here in Mark's recording is not to further condemn the scribes. The scribes stand condemned already, rather. It's to expose the true nature of who the Messiah is. Jesus was tested on the scripture by the scribes and the Pharisees. Now he is questioning them on the scripture. Jesus was questioned on the nature of obedience to God. Jesus then questioned them on the very nature of God himself. 
So the primary emphasis of this passage is on the divine nature of the coming Messiah. And that rightly understanding the Messiah means understanding his nature and his mission. A messianic hope that has been fashioned strictly along Davidic lines is simply not big enough to embrace the one whose resurrection to God's right hand implies his participation in the divine majesty. The scribes expected that a physical blood descendant of David would accede to the throne and overthrow Israel's enemies. The problem with their expectation is not that they expected too much of the Messiah, rather they expected too little. If the Messiah was simply the son of David, then the Messiah only inaugurates David's kingdom. If the Messiah is simply the son of David, he is simply a man, and a man can be corrupted. Look at, look at David, Solomon, and the other Davidic kings. Even the ones that are great, they still sinned. David with Bathsheba, Solomon turning because of the ways of his many wives, and many other Davidic kings. In this question, the scribes stand exposed, for they are considered experts in the scriptures, but their designation of the Messiah as the son of David doesn't even come from it. The messianic prophecies refer to, da- refer to the Messiah as many things, but the designation son of David is not one of those titles. In fact, the designation of the Messiah as son of David does not even show up until rabbinic literature only 150 years before Jesus' ministry. So while it is is tempting to view Mark's account as an attempt to show the scribes to be poor exegetes, Mark's purpose was to show the true nature of the Messiah. Mark is not denying Davidic descent, as prior declarations of Jesus as son of David have been met approvingly. Rather, his emphasis is not just that the Messiah is the son of David, but that he is the son of God. If the Messiah is simply the son of David, then he is not greater than David, because David is his father. And no son is greater than his father while his father is alive. Wait, you might say, didn't David die a thousand years prior Physically, sure, but as we saw in our discussion two weeks ago when the Sadducees confronted Jesus about the resurrection and Jesus used the Torah to show them the resurrection, God is the God of the living. No son is greater than their father while their father lives. So the, but as we move forward, we see that he is not only David's son. He is also David's Lord. The Messiah has already been shown to be greater than the prophets. In Mark 8, Jesus asked his disciples who people said that he was. And we're told that some were saying Elijah and others one of the prophets. Peter boldly declared, you are the Christ, the Messiah. In the passage a few weeks ago, at the beginning of Mark 12, 
in the parable of the wicked tenants, the son was declared to be of greater and higher status than the messengers. The son was greater than the prophets who had been sent prior. Here he is shown not just to be greater than the prophets, but greater than David, contrary to the nationalistic hope of the Messiah, son of David, who would overcome Israel's temporal enemies. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, has a greater mission. If the Messiah is greater than David, then his mission must also be greater than David's. His throne must be greater. His ultimate victory involves the humiliation and shame of the cross, but it results in the victory over sin and death, over evil and the demonic realm. This would bring comfort because of the promise of eternal life in God's kingdom, but it would also bring apprehension because to confess Jesus as Lord would have brought them into conflict with Rome, where the emperor alone claimed to be God. In his disputation here with the scribes, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Only here in all of Jesus' saying does he explicitly refer to the divine inspiration of the Old Testament scriptures when he declares that David, in the Holy Spirit, declared. This passage looks forward to the enthronement of the Messiah. In Jerusalem, the king's palace was to the right of the temple, symbolizing this type of relationship between God and the king. Jesus presses this language to force his opponents to reflect on how great the Messiah must be. The Messiah does not reside in the royal palace as the descendants of David did. Rather, the Messiah sits at the right hand of God himself. The Lord said to my Lord, what does not come through in the Hebrew of the psalm, it's the Lord, Yahweh, the covenantal name of God the covenant-keeping God, said to my Lord Adonai, David's, David's Lord. Lordship here refers not to deity but to headship, in the same way that the Messiah could not be greater than David if he were simply David's descendant while David still lived. David claiming a position of subordination to the Messiah indicates that the Messiah is preexistent. Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. It is quoted no fewer, I believe it was four or, four or five times. But unlike all the other passages which emphasize the second part of the verse, where the enemies are made a footstool, Jesus here is emphasizing the first part about the lordship of the Messiah. The Messiah is not just David's son. He is the son of God. Jesus' question when he asks, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Is not a denial of the Messiah's Davidic descent. Rather, it is an affirmation that the Messiah is much much more. 
The claim that the Son of Man will be glorified and seated at the right hand will be repeated again in Mark chapter 14 when Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. Now this claim would be rightly understood as blasphemy and it is, it is believed to be that by the high priests. Except, of course, if it's true. The only way that it could be true is if Jesus is also God. For Mark's readers, the ultimate victory of the Messiah over his enemies should draw to mind the victory of Jesus over his enemies, both human and demonic. If the Messiah is also the Son of God, then the Messiah brings with him the kingdom of God for which the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus then repeats his question. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? The riddle is rhetorical. The answer is that he's both. He is both David's son and David's Lord. Because he was, he was his Lord because he was before him. But he is his son because he is descended from him. And I said earlier that this is something that should have been obvious. If the scribes and the Pharisees truly knew the scripture, this is not a new revelation. Rather, it is affirming a very old prophecy. We have to go back to Isaiah chapter 11, though, to see it. In Isaiah chapter 11, we're told that the Messiah is the branch from Jesse's stump. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. He is a descendant of Jesse, David's father. But we're also told later on in verse 10 that he is also the root of Jesse. He is the source and that day the root of Jesse, who stands as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. He is both the root and the stump of Jesse. If they had known the scriptures, they would have known that the Messiah was so much more than just the son of David. For Mark... Jesus is so much more than, the, than just the son of David. He is the son of God. As is declared in verse 1, the opening line of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. God himself declared at his baptism in the transfiguration, this is my son, it was acknowledged by demons. It will be acknowledged by others coming up in chapter 15. And it is acknowledged and claimed by Jesus himself on his trial before the Sanhedrin. We see the crowd's positive response to this. The, crowd, the great throng heard what he taught gladly. It stresses its author his authority. 
Israel's leaders rejected the teaching, but the, the multitudes acknowledged it. Even Jewish historians writing, the Jewish historian Josephus, writing immediately after the time of Christ, refers to Jesus as, quote, a teacher of such people is to accept truth gladly. As the builders rejected the stone, the scribes and the Pharisees rejected the full reality of the Messiah. Now that phrase in verse 37, that they heard, they were hearing him gladly, it's the same phrase that's used to describe King Herod's delight in listening to John the Baptist. But this still did not present, prevent him from executing him when expediency called for it. And we'll see later on, in just a couple chapters. The crowds listening on with gladness does not stop them from calling for his death two days later. It is comforting to know that Jesus, a few days before his most bitter agony, was fully away, fully aware that the way of the cross would for him lead home to the crown. The theological implication of this is the divine nature of the Messiah. If the, divine nat- if, the, if the Messiah is divine, there is an implication for following him because his proclamations and instruction and condemnation are authoritative. If the Messiah is divine, then he is not bringing the kingdom of David. He is bringing with him the kingdom of God and with it God's justice and judgment on those who have opposed him and vindication and glorification for those who have served him. Once that Jesus has established that the Messiah is much more than simply the human descendant of David, but that he is also the pre-existent son of God, he moves into the final condemnation of the scribes. Mark makes it very clear that he is only recording an extract of what Jesus said when he writes in verse 38, and in his teaching he said. Luke's account is essentially an exact reproduction of Mark's. They record the same thing almost word for word. Matthew, however, records a 39-verse judgment of the scribes, often referred to as the seven woes, because of the repetition of the phrase, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Mark extracts only what Jesus what only what Matthew recorded in 23, 5 through 7. In Matthew's account, Jesus warns the people to do what the Pharisees say because they sit on Moses' seat, but do not do what they do because they do not do what they teach. In Mark, despite the much truncated recording of Jesus' words, the point is still the same. In his condemnation, he condemns them for so many things. The, the end result is they have missed the kingdom when it arrived. If we want to miss the kingdom of God, then we abdicate your God-given responsibility. This harkens back at the beginning of the chapter. In verse 12, And thematically, 
in this section, Jesus' condemnation of the scribes is a continuation of what he condemned them for in verses 1 through 12 in the parable of the wicked tenants. They were entrusted by God with a job. They were to be protectors of the soul of the nation, founts of justice and mercy, protectors of the weak and downtrodden. Instead, they were focused on their own enrichment and gain. They abandoned their job. If you want to miss the kingdom of God, then abdicate your God-given responsibility. In 38 through 40, Mark portrays the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees as puffed up and prideful. However, as we've seen in Mark, they are arrogant without cause. They've been described as badly mistaken and unable to answer Jesus' most basic questions. They are wrong on their duties. They are wrong on the law, wrong about the Messiah, and wrong on the very nature of God himself. They have profaned the name of the God they claim to serve because while they made a great show of piety in public, they plunder the most vulnerable in violation of God's very law. The main point of this section is that the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees are not true followers of the God they claim to serve. They seek their own glory and honor. Whereas Jesus' disciples are taught that greatness in the kingdom requires one to be the servant of all. And Jesus' followers are to seek gain in the next world, not this. Followers of Christ are to be servants of the community, especially of the needy and widows. Like the young rich ruler... The scribes serve as examples of those who do not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They have withheld the totality of their hearts from God. The phrase, beware of the scribes, has shown up previously. It should recall when Jesus says in chapter 8, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Jesus' charge here is that they have violated the greatest commandment to love God with the totality of their being. Rather than loving God, they elevate themselves to the place of honor rather than being elevated by God because of their humility. They forgot that it is God who raises up kings and brings them down. And like King Saul, they will be brought low through their own pride. In Jesus' warning and condemnation, he gives four examples of their pride, things that they like. Some, one translation renders it, they relish. We're told they like to walk around in fine robes. That phrase, fine robes, is used in the New Testament to refer to a few different things. It refers to either angels' garments the father's robe and the prodigal son, and the robes of the glorified saints in heaven. In the Old Testament, the phrase refers to royal or priestly garments. These robes indicate status. They indicate standing. And it could be they like to walk around in fine robes because most of the scribes were also priests or were dressing in imitation of priests so as to give an outward show of their religious devotion. In any case, this was to show off their status as religious leaders, a not-so-subtle demand for reverence. Secondly, they like greetings in the marketplaces. 
indicating a deference and respect because it was expected that the lesser would greet the greater. So they loved people to greet them because the more people that greeted them, the greater they were. In fact, their own teachings in the Talmud that taught that a person must greet one who is greater in their knowledge of Torah. It was expected. It was a law. The lesser must greet the greater. In fact, one of the writings of the time considered it a great humility when one of their most respected rabbis went out of his way to initiate greetings with others because it shouldn't have been that way. Thirdly, we're told that they like the best seats in the synagogues. The seats at front, reserved for the most honored guests and senior elders and teachers, they relished being on display for all to reverence and honor. And they liked places of honor at feasts. These were the best seats, reserved the best seats received the choice food and the best wine, and it was reserved for the most honored guest. And that was their condemnation. Jesus charges them with violating the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. A surefire way to miss the kingdom of God is to forget that you yourself are not, in fact, God, and to be completely focused on yourself. In verse 40, Jesus transitions from focusing on their ostentatious manners to their corrupt morals. He gives two examples of their treachery. First, they devour widows' homes. They burden the most vulnerable and enrich themselves at the expense of those who have nothing to give. And they, for a pretense, make lengthy prayers. They attempt to cover their predatory behavior by putting on ostentatious displays of piety. Here he charges them with violating the second commandment to love others as themselves. Rather than loving others, they take advantage of others for their own gain. The teachers, the teachers of the law did not receive any income from the state. They were de completely dependent on contributions from individuals. This led some to prey on the sympathy of others, even widows who needed all their income simply to survive. This reference to widows sets the stage for the next section, starting in 41. The scribes typically long prayers presented an impression of piety that masked their own greed. They pretended to love God greatly, but their aim was to get people to love them greatly. The result would be greater condemnation when they stood before God's judgment bar. Widows and fatherless were considered the most vulnerable in society and were consequently the objects of special protection from God. Scripture is full of all sorts of injunctions to care for them 
as well as warnings that God is their defender and will avenge those who exploit them. In Exodus 22, at the beginning of the law, we're told, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. In Deuteronomy 10, we are told, he executes judgment for the fatherless and the widow. And again in Deuteronomy 24, you shall not pervert the justice due the fatherless or take the widow's garment in pledge. In Jeremiah 7, the people are told, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land I gave of old to your fathers forever. And in Jeremiah 49, 11, at the end of the judgment on Edom, the Lord makes this, this statement, leave your fatherless children, I will keep them alive. Let your widows trust in me. Widows were the object of God's special protection and consequently should have been the object of the Pharisees and the scribes' protection. As we know, as we've seen many places throughout the Pharisees and the scribes, often added their own prohibitions which further speaks to their own judgment. Based on their own teachings, they violated their own teachings by accepting payment for widows, or from widows for legal aid and advice, even though it was forbidden under their own laws. They were cheating widows in the roles of, as guardians of their husbands' estates. They were sponging off the hospitalities that widows often showed. They were mismanaging widows' estates. They were taking money from the widows for lengthy prayers made on their behalf. The longer the prayer, the more they expected. And they were taking houses as pledges for debts that could never be repaid, thus robbing widows of their own homes. And further, they're told, they taught in their own teachings that one who advances his name destroys his name. One who makes personal use of the crown of Torah shall perish. Despite the numerous commands of Scripture expressing God's concern for widows and criticisms and condemnation of those who mistreat them, the scribes and the Pharisees preyed on them. More evidence that they had forfeit their place on Moses' seat. They have completely ceased to concern themselves with the things that concerned God. Instead of concerning themselves with the things that concerned God, they have become concerned only with their own gain. If you want to miss the kingdom of God and incur his judgment, then pray on those for whom God has afforded special protection. As we move forward in our text into 41, there's a very sudden change in tone that happens in the text. 
we move from a series of condemnation, condemning the scribes, condemning the Pharisees for withholding from God what is rightfully his, for not even understanding the law with which they were entrusted, to missing the Messiah, to violating God's law. All the things. We now come to a point in the text where we're confronted with the widow's offering. The widow's offering serves as a thematic climax of this entire exchange. In contrast to the Pharisees who have behaved like snakes in the grass, the widow demonstrates humble and faithful generosity. This episode is a pronouncement. We see in verse 43, truly I say to you, This is a divine proclamation of kingdom truth. Jesus is telling us something critical about the kingdom. And in this case, Jesus is not just making a proclamation of a kingdom truth. He is explaining it. In contrast to the scribes who seek their own enrichment and honor, this poor widow has outdone them all in humility and faithful generosity. She gave all that she had for the kingdom of God, trusting in God for her sustenance. Contrast this with the rich young ruler back in chapter 10 who asked what he must do to inherit the kingdom of God. At first, Jesus said, you you know, you must, you know, do not do the, you know, keep the law. The, the young ruler says, I've done all this from my youth. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go sell your possessions, give to the poor, come follow me. Then he would have had treasure in heaven. And we're told, not that the ruler gladly did this. We're told that the rich young man walked away sad because he had much. Here the widow, who had nothing, gave all that she had to God. The implication being that she did inherit the kingdom. Again, the purpose here is not to discredit the scribes. Their discredit is that they do not know the scripture. Keep in mind, in Matthew's account, Jesus had just warned the people to do what they teach, but, not, but do not look to them as an example. By way of counterpoint, Jesus provides an example of sacrificial giving and keeping of not just the letter, but the spirit of the law. No gift to God is insignificant when given with love and devotion. When we are commanded to love God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the rich have no special advantage in this. Because as we're told in Samuel, for the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The rich have no advantage here. As we move through this episode in Mark, we've seen three of the greatest dangers for Christians, abandonment of responsibility, pride, and abuse of power. 
And that's contrasted now with three of the most important traits for godly living. Humility, generosity, and faith. To see the kingdom of God, we must have humility. Thus far, in Jesus' teaching in Mark 12, he's been in the outer court of the Gentiles. But here he's moved further into the temple complex, into the women's court. The furthest that women could enter the temple. In this court, there were 13 metal shofars to collect the voluntary offerings. Each one was labeled with a different marking indicating for what each gift was designated. Here Jesus observed not just a widow who would be vulnerable enough, but a poor widow, doubly vulnerable. She is the one for whom the gleanings would have been left on the edges of the field. She would have been completely dependent on what was left by her husband, if anything at all, and the goodwill of others. Whereas the rich gave large sums for show, in her poverty, the widow gave a pittance. We're told a penny. The Greek says tulepta. The equivalent of this was one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. One sixty-fourth of a denarius. In modern terms, it would have been the equivalent of 15 minutes worth of work in an eight-hour day. And we're told, in an emphasis of her poverty, that that is all she had. She gave it all. In contrast to the, the scribes, who we were just told make a great show of all that they do in order to draw attention to themselves, the sense of how the widow is described communicates that this was done in an inconspicuous manner so as not to draw attention. And yet, one exhibiting fruit of the kingdom of God will always draw Jesus' attention. To see the kingdom of God when it comes, we must have humility. To see the kingdom of God, we must have a generous heart. This is the great teaching of Jesus that serves as a grand counter to what we've seen from the scribe and the Pharisees. Truly, I say to you, the divine pronouncement. Jesus declares that she is given more than anyone else. What? She gave a 64th of a day's wage. How can this be so? Jesus goes on to explain that she gave more than all the others because they gave out of what they had. The widow gave out of what she did not have. They gave what they were comfortable living, what they believed they could afford to give and still maintain the standard of living to which they had become accustomed. In contrast, the widow gave out of her poverty. She gave what she could not afford to give. She gave all that she had. Since she gave two coins, she could have kept one for herself, but she didn't. 
we learn here that the means of the giver and the motive of the giving are the true test of generosity. It's not what is given, but what is left. The widow gave generously and liberally. In contrast to the Pharisees who desired to be showered with gifts by others, the widow gave with, with what could only be described as reckless abandon. To see the kingdom of God when it comes, we must be generous with all that God has given us. And that means the entirety of our being, because not a breath enters our lungs without his permission. To love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength means to willingly and freely give back to him what he has allowed us to hold in trust and to put into his service. What we have was not given to us for our comfort. We will have comfort in the kingdom, brothers and sisters. Rather, what we have been given has been given that we might use it for God's greater glory and the furtherance of his kingdom. Finally, what we learn from the widow is that her generosity was only possible through faith in the one who made her. To see the kingdom of God, we must have faith. Her sacrifice expressed her love of God by giving all that she had and her trust in God to sustain her. Approximately, this text serves as a counterpoint to the greed and the predation of the scribes. We would be amiss, however, if we did not make the connection back to a more distal passage that we had previously read, the rich young ruler. Again, if we recall the passage, Jesus asked him what he must, what he must do, or the ruler asked him what he must do to inherit the kingdom. Jesus said, give it all away. Give to the poor. Come follow me. And the response of the man was, again, one of disheartenment, of sadness, because he had much. Was Jesus saying that the rich man could buy his way into the kingdom through his generosity? By no means. By giving all that he possessed to the poor, he would rid himself of all that would hold him back from being fully reliant on his creator to sustain him. For even if he had retained a mite of his wealth, he would face the temptation to say that, it is pro- that it, he is providing for himself like Nebuchadnezzar of old. By giving away all that he owned, he would have no choice but to trust in God. In this way, the widow's generosity really betrayed her faith in the Lord to sustain her. Because in giving all, she had to live on. She entrusted the entirety of, ex- of her existence to the God who made her. She truly believed that the Lord was the defender of the fatherless and widows, that he would protect and sustain her. When we truly recognize that all we have comes from God and that it is his strength and not our own that sustains us, we become much less attached to the things of this world because we learn to trust in the God who made us who numbers the hairs on our head. Truly loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength means that we have an absolute and humble assurance that he will meet our every need. In this, this in turn allows us to be joyfully generous because we trust that he will sustain us. It is only through a faithful reliance on the God who made us and humble submission 
to his son, the king, that we truly love others as Christ has loved us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that you have preserved your word and that we can read it, that we can learn, that we can apply, and that your word can change our heart and soul. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.